Because Money was originally recorded as a video podcast, so there may be visuals that don't carry through to this audio-only version. Please visit becausemoney.ca to see the show notes, related links, and more. Started making it rain. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to the Because Money podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Jackson Middleton, one of your hosts, along with Rob Engen and Sandy Martin in black and white. This week, we have special guest Preet Banerjee, all the way from Toronto, uh, in his condo above a brewery, which sounds awesome. Uh, Preet comes to us uh, from his website. Pretty much, if you want to find Preet online, Google Money. And he'll show up everywhere. I think he's on WhereDoesAllMyMoneyGo.com. You know, he runs the uh, uh, Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian podcast with, uh, I think it's a PG-13 rating, so, I mean, viewer discretion advised. And uh, is uh, author of the, the new book, Stop Overthinking Your Money. So, Preet, thanks for joining us. Uh, CBC Marketplace, Rob's going to talk a little bit about that, and then we're going. If you, as a viewer out there in Viewerland, want to talk, or have a question for Preet or uh, one of the panel, hit us on the hashtag because money. We'll uh, take it up and we'll we'll rock and roll with that. But if you're looking to just kind of throw in your two cents, I'm going to moderate with a tight fist this one. So here we go. Rob, it's on to you. Well, thanks, Jackson and Preet. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, I think we were all excited when we saw the a little teaser for the CBC Marketplace uh, that, that uh, debuted on Friday. And uh, so in case you haven't seen it or if you did, um, basically it was kind of an inside look at uh, the banks. They sent someone in and, um, with the hidden cameras. They sent them into some of the banks and, and investment, uh, just some other investment advisors. And uh, basically wanted to get the lowdown on what they were telling, what they're telling the individual retail investor. Uh, were they getting good advice, bad advice, no advice? And uh, it was, um, if, if you saw it, it was pretty fascinating uh, from the big banks to the Primericas and investors groups, um, it, it was uh, some interesting advice, to say the least. And, and I think uh, Preet had had the look on his face like, uh, I can't believe people would just be, or you would tell someone that as money advice. And so I guess I'd maybe throw that out to Preet. Is would uh, were you surprised at all by uh, some by some of the advice you heard from uh, some of the bankers and advisors out there? Uh, yes and no, and uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me on the show this week, guys. Um, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of background on uh, uh, on my experience with the, the Marketplace episode. So I was there for hours, and I actually saw quite a bit of footage from more advisors than were shown on the show. So on one hand, you know, having been in the business, having been an advisor and talked to thousands of advisors and, you know, traveled in the same circles for a while, we all sort of know that there's a certain amount of deadwood in the industry, no doubt about that. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, overall, while there was a relatively high incident rate of questionable advice being doled out, uh, you know, I think they featured three or four examples out of the ten that they went into on a randomly selected basis. So that's a pretty high incidence rate, just no matter how you cut it. But that being said, I do feel that maybe a lot of people who are not initiated as much as we are, the people who might be listening to this podcast, will get the impression that all financial advisors are uh, useless, um, are crooked, or incompetent, or what have you. And that's not the case. We all know that there are a lot of great advisors. And what I wanted to uh, make people uh, clear about the understanding of the, the nature of the advice channel or advice delivery system in Canada is that there are a lot of great advisors and really it's worth the time to try and find the good ones because there are enough bad ones that you have issues like this cropping up more than you would hope. 
Um, so to answer your question, I wasn't really surprised, but I think the program may have overstated a little bit, but that's TV, that's ratings, right? You want to show the stuff that people are going to be polarized by. So what was more surprising, the fact that uh, there was like explicit um, a lack of knowledge? There was the one, I think, was it a BMO advisor who was talking about the... Uh, the MER isn't charged unless, or it's, it comes off of the returns. It's not charged automatically. Well, uh, well the other thing, actually, that's a good point. So <clears throat> the other impression I thought was maybe um, could have been construed incorrectly by viewers is that uh, those individual uh, advisors, quote-unquote advisors, represent the entire firm. So I actually prefer not to use the firm's name because at pretty much all of those firms, I know there are great advisors, and pretty much all firms, there are some that have questionable uh, competency levels. So we'll just stick to you know some of the advice that was given. Sure. So and there so was. I guess one what I what I would ask then is, would uh, was was it more surprising to hear the uh, the inaccurate information as far as just not knowing, or was it more surprising to hear the flat out outrageous kind of lies that were? Um, I promise you, you know, you could earn forty percent return on your. Right. On your investment. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, those those promises, um, those wild promises of possible returns, and, and remember, the, the person that went in, they had a, a fairly conservative risk profile, and right. from, to my knowledge, he made that clear to the advisors, and so for the one person who was recommending, you know, if you give me $50,000, um, I don't know if this made it onto the show, but more of that transcript basically said, Part of it will be in very conservative investments, and the rest of it will be more risky so that you can get some growth on your money. And so only the risky part would generate right. the $20,000 return on the entire portfolio, uh, which would mean that that part of the portfolio would have an extremely high rate of return right. over a very short period of time. So that is clearly outrageous, right? You just right. simply cannot say stuff like that. On the other hand, when you have someone who is um, purported to be the financial advisor that you would talk to about your questions, there is a certain amount of knowledge that is you have to get right. You cannot get certain things wrong. Like when someone asks you, what are the fees on a product? You should be able to answer that without having to look it up. Um, right. So while on the show it looked like about 10 or 15 seconds of that advisor looking for the answer, it was actually closer to about, I'm thinking, a minute or 90 seconds wow. of trying to find that an answer. And you can see that she was struggling. You can also see that... She wasn't a, um, an evil person by any means. She actually struck me as someone who was very kind but just simply didn't know. And that's another issue, right? So if, if you have a situation where there are people who are simply don't have the level of training required um, to provide the advice that we expect um, as investor advocates, as people who have been in the business for a while, then that's also a separate issue but also a big issue. Right. Now, Sandy, I want to throw it over to you because you come from this industry or you came from this industry and so what were your thoughts on the uh, on the marketplace program and is that a typical experience I guess um, you know from an investor walking in off the street? Well, not, I mean obviously just like Preet said and Barry Choi I know is talking about this on Google Plus as well that um, it's TV so of course the most outrageous clips are the ones that people are going to see um, so obviously that happens because it happened on TV, um, and that, I mean it's common, obviously. But I think it's I think the most the most common um, experience that I could talk to investors about is there's an awful lot of turnover at that level in a bank, 
Um, and I only have bank experience, obviously. I'm not never worked for an Edward Jones or an investors group or anything. But um, when you first start out, I mean, you have to pass your your mutual funds licensing. You've got to be licensed as a mutual fund dealer, and you have like a length of time that you're on probation, sort of. But it's pretty easy at that first stage. I mean, I would say for the first however long it takes for you to really grasp that, especially if you're in a smaller branch and have to do mortgages and mutual funds and bank account openings and everything else. Um, from my own experience, it was pretty easy for somebody to ask me a question that would stump me. And I was licensed. I was supposed to know all that stuff. And that's, I think, from my own experience, that's what shocked me into thinking, I've got to go keep learning. I can't just you know rest on my licensing laurels. But I think the problem with an episode like that is that we can all have sort of that outraged feeling that, oh my goodness, there's bad advisors out there and we have to make sure to find a good one. And there are good ones. But the difficulty is <laughs> it's difficult to identify them. And from the bigger regulatory perspective, I mean, I always end up talking about how, you know, embedded commissions and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of a boon to any sort of financial institution that's established that doesn't want to talk about changing you know, that embedded commission structure or the incentivized sales advice or the bias advice or anything like that. Because now we can just say, oh, look at those bad advisors. They're pretty horrible. But we disciplined them. That one's on suspension. So it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just find a good one. That was sort of my take from the episode. It's probably not the question you asked me, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying more along the lines of uh, it's, it's, not, it's easy to blame a few bad apples when there's a bigger inherent problem with, with the whole industry. Yeah, although it was still, but but I don't want to say that this was not a valuable episode. I mean, these are things that I mean, absolutely investors need to see this. Regular Main Street people who would otherwise have no concept that the person they're sitting across the desk from might not be telling them the, the straight goods, they need to know that that's a possibility. So, Preet, what uh, what should you be asking uh, your advisor? If you watch that episode and you're outraged and you go into your, your bank or your, you go see your advisor, what kind of questions I'm gonna maybe weed out the good or the bad? Yeah, Rob, I'm going to jump in and say, are you reading the Twitter? Are you taking my job? Because Scott <laughs> Dawson from the Twitter just asked that. He says, what's the top question we ask, should ask a financial advisor at a bank? Are you qualification to make sure they're good? So, yeah, same question. All <laughs> just brought in from the Twitter. Sure. I'll, I'll start to, to tackle that question by first saying that there is no one question. It's right. going to take a series of questions. You're going to have to invest some time to really interview them. And that, unfortunately, requires that you invest some time sort of understanding the landscape. Um, so certainly the, the Marketplace episode would sort of identify some of the things that you probably wouldn't want to hear. Um, but again, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of investor advocates, people in the industry who've been in the business much longer than I have. Um, and we've tried to figure out, well, how do you figure out if you have a good advisor? The problem is that if you go to uh, an institution or a firm looking for financial advice, you basically don't have the skill set or the knowledge to be able to understand if you have a good advisor or not. That's why you're getting advice in the first place, right? So if you understood everything that they said at the level that they do, you probably wouldn't need an advisor. Very few people fit that situation. So it's kind of a catch-22. It's a, between a rock and a hard place to a certain degree. But what I've found over time is that uh, if you can have a meaningful conversation about fees, and I want to talk about this in some depth, um, because fees are not the be-all and end-all of managing your money, but it's important that your advisor is candid about it. And I'll say that because uh, if you get a song and dance about fees, that's a red flag, and I say that in the episode. And I don't necessarily 
um, after having talked to many advisors who are in the business who maybe operate on a purely commission-based model, and maybe some of them deal with uh, you know newer investors or small investors, and some of them may use uh, you know loaded mutual funds, uh, front-end load, back-end load, what have you. It's tough to find a model that works better than that for a very small investor. So if you look at the relative fees, then yes, you could say a 3% MER mutual fund is outrageous, um, all of the things being equal. But if you are a new investor or you don't have any money invested yet, there is a value to having an advisor incentivized to get you to invest um, by putting you into a product that has commissions. And when you look at the absolute cost over the first couple of years, it pales in comparison to many of the other models. So if you went to a fee-for-service planner, and let's say that on the cheap end, it would be $1,000 for a financial plan and investment policy statement, which is probably cheap. Most people who are just starting out aren't going to fork over 1000 bucks, so that's off the table. If you wanted a fee-based advisor charge a percentage of assets, most firms don't even allow you to do that with less than $100,000 of assets, so that's off the table. So the only model available to you anyways is the commission-based structure and, and predominantly in the form of mutual funds, which may or may not be deferred sales charge funds. So if you actually take a look at someone who's never invested before and, and they get encouraged by uh, an advisor to start putting away money for the first time, and maybe had they not met that advisor, they would never have done that, there's value to that. And when you calculate the fees on, say, a $50 pack plan over the first couple of years, even if you took all that money out and you're in the first or second year of the DSC redemption schedule where the fees, the redemption fees are the highest, the total absolute dollar value of the fee that you pay is not that high. Now, this becomes a bigger problem or it becomes a issue as your portfolio gets bigger. So, it, you know, I know there are a lot of people saying you should get completely rid of embedded uh, commissions and what have you. And that's actually a much more nuanced argument than, than most people believe. It's not a black and white issue at all. That was a throw to you, I think, Sandy, black and white. Because I'm in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Um, I would agree that it's definitely a nuanced. Um, actually, uh, did I add to the list? Sorry, that's a stupid question. I have a list. The Fair Canada came out with um, their discussion on kind of the whole way that they would um, recommend changing the the mutual fund industry. It was their letter to um, the Ontario Securities Commission, which I'm sure, obviously, Preet, that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that that is, I mean, that document is fairly nuanced and offers a couple of stages of um, ways to get into that whole embedded commission concept. And I don't disagree at all that this that small investor, I mean, on a, on a real relative sense, is not paying too much and um, for that kind of commissioned advice. I guess my concern, and it's always, I mean, it always comes back to personal responsibility anyway, but my concern is for that investor a few years down the road who doesn't take the time um, and isn't encouraged then by a really candid conversation about fees because they've never really thought about it um, with the person that's offering them that advice. Um, to then move on to the next stage because at, at some point, you know, a 2.53% commission is going to damage them long term. Yeah. So when are, what's the trigger point for them? Do we, we kind of just expect that, the, that they're going to all of a sudden go, hey, I'm paying too much in fees and now I'm going to kind of reverse my stance and do something else. That's to me the big concern. Yeah. Yeah, it's true because, you know, when you start with an advisor, there's, uh, there's a certain amount of inertia there. Now, sometimes that problem is taken care of for you because of the high turnover level uh, that you've identified. 
and that gives you an opportunity to uh, to to take uh, you know maybe take some time to find a new advisor. But yeah, it is a tough one. Um, I can give you some examples of um, you know when I was an advisor, I actually offered people the choice of either paying commissions, uh, they could pay a percentage uh, of assets, or they could pay me on a fee for service basis on an hourly. And I'll walk them through. Here's you know where it makes sense. Here's the sweet spot for all these different ones. But what gets lost is when you do the mathematical analysis, that's one thing, but the psychological thing is is, is much more important. So I had a client, um, I forget the exact amount, it was a long time ago now, a couple hundred thousand dollars invested, uh, transferred over from another firm, and it was all in mutual funds. And I said, you know, we could switch over to a, uh, a fee-based uh, system where I charge you percentage of assets. It actually worked out to be a little bit less for them. They said, this is great. Um, they understood that. Now they saw the fee. After two years, they said, I want to go back to the other way because I just can't stand seeing the fees. I said, you understand that you're still paying less and you're better off this way. He said, yes, but I just cannot stand seeing it for me itemized on my statement. So there's a lot of psychology involved. And uh, again, like I said, it's just it's so much more nuanced than, than most people would believe. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, I've heard that anecdotally from, I mean, in the whole kind of great debate with some of the um, self-regulated industries and or organizations, sorry. Um, I've heard that from other financial advisors who are still in the industry and um, and I've lost my train of thought as usual. <laughs> yeah, oh, well I happens. guess maybe I, can, maybe, maybe I can pick up for you. Um, so there are still a lot of people who, when you get to a higher portfolio value, let's say you get to half a million bucks. Um, these are people that will generally have an accountant that they pay by the hour. Um, they'll probably have an ongoing relationship with a lawyer that they pay by the hour. So for them, it's not much of a leap at all. They've gotten to the point now where this makes sense and they're able to take the cost and then equate that to the value that they're getting. And the thing is that most people aren't going to have a half million dollar portfolio. So as Marketplace pointed out, uh, I don't know the source, but it doesn't sound too far off. The average person has about $50,000. So again, at $50,000, your options already are limited to begin with. Um, so that again, just to reinforce my point that uh, there is this utopia that we all think is, is best and uh, I actually wrote a feature for Money Sense called How to Find the Perfect Financial Planner and it dissects a lot of these issues. Um, so if people haven't read that, I strongly suggest reading that uh, and, and what you'll see is that the holy grail of sticking it to the sometimes gluttonous practices of the financial services for higher net worth portfolios um, would be a fee-for-service um, arrangement for the financial planning and you have your own do-it-yourself couch potato portfolio. I can tell you that there are very few people that would actually, that that model works very well for. It's it's mm -hmm. very, very, very rare because the fortitude to stick to a couch potato portfolio is incredibly tough when you have a half million bucks because when you start to see the declines in your portfolio, that's when you know you're supposed to stick to the plan or rebalance. A lot of people don't do that with, on their own volition without having spent a lot of time understanding the strategy and what I found is that a lot of people and Dan Bordelotti himself he was on my podcast and he wrote an article in Money Sense I think it was Money Sense it says how I became a couch potato investor and it was a very popular article it got a lot of people interested in becoming do-it-yourself couch potato investors and he said if he could do it all over again he would take it all back because again the psychological component of being a, a, a do-it-yourself couch potato investor is much harder than it seems. Now, is, so, that, yeah. is that a lot, sorry go ahead Jackson. 
I was going to jump in with uh, with a question from the Twitter. A friend of the podcast, Noel D'Souza, jumped in and said, why tie the cost of advice to portfolio size? What about those who need cash flow, debt, tax advice with smaller nor portfolio? And that's, I guess, along the lines of, you know, when I see... Uh, you know, although I hate the term fee-only financial planner because it fee-only, and I just think there's a real big marketing <laughs> problem there. But you know, I you know, with my experience as a mortgage professional dealing with first-time home buyers, young people, you know, it's kind of like the credit card limit is a spending limit, and it's you know the the financial management I think gets lost. I I think the conversation around investments and where you know how how do we best manage our investments is great, but what about the rest of Canadians? I would say the majority of Canadians who have no idea what to even do with their money. Right. And, and uh, I liked what they touched on in that report in the in the marketplace show about uh, debt and how often the advisors were mentioning it. And, and yeah. um, you know, it's really important to look at those overall goals and it's not just about the investment or, or the products. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as I stated, uh, it was either in the written accompanying piece on CBC's website is... Um, you know, when the average person off the street walks into, be it a bank, an independent firm, or what have you, and they say, I need to speak to a financial advisor, whoever you put on the other side of that table uh, basically is going to look the same to that client off the street. They could be a, a CFP with a CFA. They could be someone who simply has their uh, license to sell mutual funds and they were licensed last week. If you ask the average person, do you have a financial planner? They may have a financial salesperson and they'll say, yes, I have a planner, because they can't make that distinction because it hasn't been made very clearly to the public for a very long time. And it's only now starting to come to the forefront that you want planning, not just product sales. So it's a bit of a leap for people. Uh, anyways, I'll toss it back to anyone else who wants to add in their two cents on that. But um, to answer Noel's question uh, or concern about cash flow and whatnot, uh, in my book, I'm going to be... Um, self-promotional uh, here. Uh, there's five simple rules. Number one is disaster-proofing people's lives. And basically, I start off by saying that, yes, the uh, the industry is basically, and media as well, has convinced people that being good with money means saving for retirement, having a retirement plan. So retirement is 40, 50 years away for many people. The risks that exist in your life between now and then, there are tons of them, and you need to address those first. Uh, so disaster-proofing is things like, you know, making sure you have a will, powers of attorney, running a surplus, having emergency fund, life insurance, disability insurance, and so on and so forth. You need to figure out those things today um, before you can really become an investor, right? Because to be an investor, first you must be a saver. So cash flow management is so incredibly important, um, and it's a tough nut to crack because if you have problems managing your cash flow, a lot of people are going to be pretty hesitant to fork over cash to, to give to someone who's going to help them with their budget. I mean, it seems like a really good return on investment to me because if you hire someone who specializes in that and you can't find the money, they're going to show you how to find the money. So not only will you be able to pay for their services, you'll be much more set up for the future. Um, and it's the cornerstone for most people um, with their finances. If I look back to my most successful clients, the ones who had millions of dollars or the ones who were just starting up and had all the good habits, the thing that was common was not their knowledge about investment markets or keeping up on the business news. It was the simple things like running a surplus. That really is so key. Yeah, and I'm nodding remember. like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't remember the exact scenario of how it went down on the, on the Marketplace show, but uh, she, the, she basically came in there and said, I have 50000 to invest. Is that 
Is that how that went down? And, and the only, only a few times did it circle back to, well, well, what else is going on in your life as far as, you know, do you have any other outstanding debts, loans, uh, yeah. you know, short-term goals and that sort of thing? Yeah, I believe the um, the premise of the person going in was they had just received an inheritance of $50,000 and they wanted to know what to do and they needed advice about money, yeah. full stop. And then they just wanted to see, well, what would happen? What would that what would that lead to? Who would they put in front of that person? What advice yeah. would they get? So not everyone asked about debt. Um, many of them did. Uh, some of them had a, a pretty good, fulsome conversation about it. And there was a lot of advisors um, that uh, said, you know, here's the planning process. Here's what we need to do. We need to understand your personality, uh, how much you're paying on your debts and whatnot, your your goals and whatnot. And uh, if I remember correctly, there was one or two of them that said, you know, we're not going to make any decisions today. We've got to start a process to figure out what's right for you. Um, and then there were others that were uh, more focused on what, what do I do with that $50,000. So that was, I guess, one of uh, the acid tests was, you know, you go in there and how deep does that probing process uh, become for someone walking in off the street? Yeah, and I would say actually to go kind of full circle, if we want to talk about the people that, um, you know, that are asking, okay, so how am I supposed to then suss out the good financial advisors that are out there that aren't as swayed by, you know, the incentives or whatever? Um, and I would say a very good litmus test is how much time are they willing to talk to you about? And and I think it's a difficult test because a lot of people don't like to keep asking questions or, or kind of show their cards that they don't really get what's going on and I think there's a little bit of you know, embarrassment or this person across the desk works at a bank so they must know everything but if you have the t if you can put the time in to even even if you don't you know do a lot of research and know all the really awesome questions to ask if you just keep asking until you understand what the person across the desk is talking about and if the person across the desk is willing to keep talking then I think that I mean that's a it, it's a good indication at least that it's worth continuing to pursue Right, and what Preet, and like I like what Preet said about the song and dance about about fees. Like, can you explain mm -hmm. it to me in a way that makes sense and, and like I I can get this now, and yeah. uh, and I like that uh, what you said about the process. Oh, this is a you know this is going to take a couple meetings to kind of get, you know, where we want to where we want to go, and it's not just about getting out my binder full of products and and seeing what where you fit, you know, where you best fit in this. What the fund of the month is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some uh, some other things we should probably touch on. Um, you know, there's uh, – I got a lot of uh, response on Twitter, um, emails uh, from people who had watched the show. And predominantly, they're from uh, CFPs, uh, Certified Financial Planners. And uh, I have yet to find one person who said – who is 100% negative. Most of them were predominantly positive with the feedback they provided on the show. One guy even told me that uh, the entire office got together to watch the episode online in the office, and they were hooting and hollering at some of the bad advice that was being doled out. So there are also a lot of financial advisors. The the guys who are making a real effort, they're decent people, um, and uh, they're doing all the things they need to do to be professional uh, with their clients. They are putting their clients' interests ahead of their own. And, and, you know, the one thing I kind of feel sorry about is that they may have been tarnished with that broad broad strokes of that brush um, that might have been uh, the, the reception from watching the program. And, uh, and so I want people who watch the show to sort of, you know, don't just uh, have a, a gut reaction that you should fire your advisor because they're all evil. Start talking to your advisor, having a meaningful conversation. 
And one of the big problems I see with a lot of people when they pick their financial advisor is that they pick the first one that they run into, uh, the first one that gets referred to them, um, and they spend much more time hiring contractors to have their basement finished. They'll get three people in, they'll question them, they'll ask for references, they'll get quotes, and they'll compare them. They spend much more time doing that than they do with their life savings, which to me doesn't make any sense at all. So there is responsibility on the part of the consumer as, as well. So is that is that just a trust that the person I'm dealing with must know what they're talking about? Um, yeah, if you look at the two traits that uh, consumers want most out of the financial advisor, it's uh, trust and ethics. Um, accordingly, uh, if you look at the uh, um, was it trust um, ratings of different professions out there, um, you know, there's politicians and financial advisors are near the bottom these days, and. Um, don't forget real estate agents and mortgage brokers. We're at the bottom too. But. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, again, you can't lump everyone in um, in the same uh, in the same bucket. There's there's definitely some great uh, advisors out there, and it's worth the time to find them. Absolutely. Uh, but again, the the thing that stuck out at me was the uh, the high rate of incidents uh, from that random selection of ten different advisors. So it's too high. Um, uh, it's now been recognized. The industry is probably recognized. The good advisors, I would say, um, they've known about this for a long time. And I think it would be doing everyone a service, consumers and advisors, if we did a better job of getting rid of the, the dead wood. And what what about the firm's re, uh, responses on, uh, I think CBC posted them. Um, yeah. You know, what, what was your take on, uh, on on some of those responses from the industry? Yeah, uh, I mean, you have to take that into the context of uh, how many, you know, people have to go through to put together an official response and uh, what kind of can of worms that opens up. So, I mean, if I was the head of a company, I would probably have a similar response. Um, that being said, um, you know, I think we can't look necessarily to to the firms to push for change. Um, I think the regulators need to be given teeth so that they can actually install these changes. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Financial literacy would help solve the problem, but financial literacy is decades away. Let's be serious. It's going to take a very long time for consumers to be informed enough to deal with the system the way that it is. So the people who are in the know, we need to step up. Advisors need to step up and say, yes, we would like to get rid of the people who are making us all look bad and are doing bad things for the consumers. Um, but it, it's tough not to crack. I think I'll just close by saying, like, I didn't, I didn't get the impression that the whole industry, like, uh, painted with the one brush of everyone's bad or evil. I got the impression that this is a really important topic, and it needs, there needs to be more light shone on it. And, um, you know, we need to have more episodes like that, CBC Marketplace. We need to have more, you know, till debt do us parts. We need to have more of those <laughs> so that we can all have a conversation about money. And I kind of go back to like Jackson's doing this 52 weeks uh, money saving challenge and he's got people all like in his you know friend circle you know that wouldn't normally talk about money now talking about it that's a cool idea you know give me some ideas on, on you know what you guys do what we do those are the kind of conversations we all need to have to all like that'll increase our financial literacy a lot quicker than you know some textbook that you know may get passed down through the curriculum the next, the next hidden camera episode that I want to see is the one that goes into the sales meetings and the coaching meetings at the bank. That's what I would like. To see. <laughs> good, good I would luck. like. I would like. I would like consumers to know what happens in those kinds of meetings. 
Well, there we go. We should wrap up. Preet, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, half an hour pretty much on the nose, so I know you've had a tough day, so why don't you go and relax and enjoy a couple more beverages and uh, really appreciate you joining us. And uh, Thanks, everyone, and uh, we're out of here. Thanks for having me, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Because Money is a labor of love and involves no ads or other sponsorship, be sure to click the like or subscribe button where you downloaded this from, as we'll help other listeners find the podcast and raise our profile, which in turn makes it easier to book guests. Please visit becausemoney.ca for show notes and related links.